Hi, this is Dr. Peter Stapleton, and today we'll be mapping EFT tapping on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Pita Stapleton. Dr. Pita Stapleton is a clinical and health psychologist and an associate professor at Bond University who embraces evidence-based practice and is passionate about new and innovative techniques for food cravings and weight management. She has led a world-first study investigating the impact of emotional freedom techniques in the brain through an fMRI study for obese adults. Pita has been recognized with the American Harvey Baker Research Award for Medicine meticulous research in energy psychology, the Global Weight Management Congress Industry Professional Award of Excellence, and the greatest contribution to the field of energy psychology. In 2019, she was named Psychologist of the Year by the Australia Allied Health Awards. Pita is a Hay House author of The Science Behind Tapping, a proven stress management technique for the mind and body, which you will find linked in the show notes along with the completed matrix of today's episode. Pita, thank you so much for joining me on the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I am thrilled to talk about this topic. It's one that I've heard a lot about over the years, and I think a lot of us clinicians have. I'm wondering if you can just start us out by talking about some of the history of EFT. Sure, absolutely. So EFT, while it's been around for about 40 45 years now, came out of a very similar technique uh, called thought field therapy, so TFT. And the, I guess, originator of EFT, uh, Gary Craig, who was an engineer from Stanford University, was doing his own exploration around different, I guess, supportive mind-body practices, had trained in thought field therapy, which uses very similar acupressure points, stimulation of those, but lots of different variations for different issues. And I guess Gary, as an engineer, and I'm married to an engineer, so I kind of know how they think, <laughs> went, can we simplify this and make it a one-stop shop so one size fits all? And we ended up with what we now know as EFT, emotional freedom techniques, which is just one set of acupressure points that's used for every single issue that is out there that people want to apply it to. So that's sort of where it came from. And I guess even further back historically than that, we did have people in the kinesiology field that Mm. were, I guess, investigating uh, different sort of approaches that were along the same kind of line. And obviously Chinese acupuncture being a a real solid foundation across all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Part one of the roots there. You look at the use of EFT through a very particular lens that has to do with weight, metabolic issues. Can you talk more about that connection? Yes. So when we first got into uh, research and clinical trials around that area, it ultimately came out of my private practice area was eating disorders. So Mm. anorexia, bulimia, that type of thing. And here in Australia, we do have that obesity crisis that's been going on for a good 20 years as well. So we wondered back in the day, would helping people perhaps reduce food cravings that they found really hard to resist, who were obviously having problems 
problems with their weight as a result, so obese adults. And we wondered if we could reduce the food cravings, would that have an impact long term over time in that you didn't have to use willpower to stay away from a, a trigger food or a food that might not be great for your health because you might be doing something else to lose weight. And lo and behold, we were right. Obviously, long term follow up shows us that kind of thing. A year and two years later, we check back in with our people and tapping on a food craving and reducing that to sort of no desire indeed results in weight loss over time. So there's a real, I guess, synthesis that comes in there with how the brain might change its neural pathways as well in terms of its relationship with food. And if that's not using willpower and it's just not something you think about anymore, then of course, you know, you go on to change not only lifestyle, but food choices and certainly body shape and weight. It's such a good indication of what's possible with the technique. And I love that you brought Mm. up the neural pathways. Is there a stress response? What's happening in that neural pathway that we're actually shifting through the technique? Yeah, what we understand, and we now have some fairly sophisticated EEG, fMRI studies, certainly cortisol and things like that, where if the amygdala, that stress center in the brain, certainly is playing a role in lots of stress responses. And for us, food cravings, addictions are part of that. So the tapping technique has been shown in those physiological studies to have a direct effect on that amygdala activity. And if that amygdala becomes quiet, isn't sending out the stress response anymore, if we get physiological changes like decreased cortisol, decreased blood pressure, you know, more smooth heart rate variance, coherence, that type of thing. What we also then see is within time, if that pattern or that behavior isn't being repeated in somebody's life, the brain is able to sort of shift its pathways, what we're talking about with that neural sort of connection there. Meaning, and I guess it's that old adage of Hebeans law or principle that what fires together wires together Mm -hmm. but the same is opposite that what doesn't fire anymore no longer wires together and then we're seeing that shift six 12 months later where people literally look at us and say what do you mean I had that food craving I haven't eaten that food for 12 months and we're like oh okay so it's just not part of their repertoire anymore so we know directly the amygdala, that stress center, absolutely is affected by this tapping technique on these acupressure points, which in turn has sort of far-reaching effects on the body system and certainly behavior. It's so fascinating. I know that when I have in the past been working with people with their blood sugar balance and we're looking at reducing sugar and they have sugar cravings or even what might be considered a quote-unquote sugar addiction, that when we get into that mental space where we are saying or we're seeing our clients or patients say, should I or shouldn't I? That there are brain chemicals that are releasing during that Mm -hmm. time of should I or shouldn't I? And Mm -hmm. if we don't, we're not actually in this panicked state. And it's kind of like, if I can interpret what you're saying, we're actually giving the body something to do in that state of panic of the should I or shouldn't I that reframes or rewires the whole pathway of the neurochemical release. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, dovetailing into that is this whole theory of how does it work? And we go to memory reconsolidation theory that that suggests that if in that moment of should I, shouldn't I, and that we call that internal conflict in Mm -hmm. psychology, that internal conflict moment, if you do an opposite behavior in that very moment that's going on, and for us, that's the tapping because it's a calming technique. And it could be other things for other people. But if you give the brain an experience of a direct opposite juxtaposition, 
question, if you like, then the brain gets an alternative response. So that panic turns into calm mm. or it might be something else. So, yes, so we're, we're exactly what you're saying and we almost have a theory we can wrap around that as well to explain how this is actually happening. When we look at the actual technique itself, I'm wondering if you could first explain it to those clinicians who are unfamiliar with it and then maybe we can talk about some of the specific uses. Absolutely. So EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques, is often called tapping and I know we're referring to it as that because it describes the technique itself of we have acupuncture points that are all over the body. EFT just uses eight of them that exist and Harvard University has done those studies identifying and mapping the body of where they all are. So we stimulate those pressure points with two fingers with a tapping technique instead of perhaps using an acupuncture needle. So listeners might be familiar with acupuncture. So instead of using a needle, we stimulate them with two fingers by tapping on those pressure points, but at the same time, focus our mind on our problem. And this is where it gets a little bit different to traditional talk therapy. We're actually a little bit counterintuitive and I guess many of us are probably used to trying to be positive and trying to reframe or ignore what's really going on and, you know, have a brave face. But in EFT, we actually ask our people that we're teaching to say their problem out mm. loud while we tap. So it's quite different in that. And as long as you get your head around, I actually have to be really truthful here. So if I feel really stressed, that's actually what I'm going to say when I do the tap tapping technique. And then we've got all the physiological studies that show that it actually has an impact. And that problem doesn't get reinforced in the brain. It's actually released. It's almost like uh, I have colleagues who say it's like you bring up a document on the computer and you just have it there long enough to hit the delete button. Right. And the delete button is the tapping technique, not just the stating of the problem. And are there specific areas on the body? You said there were specific acupressure mm. points that uh, are at the roots of the tapping location. Location. So we're using yes. the double finger. Where are those points? Yes, absolutely. So if I just talk through the eight points that are typically used in EFT and all our research studies, the very first one is the start of the eyebrow. So people can just tap there as we talk, start of the eyebrow. The second one is the side of the eye. The third one is under the eye on the bone, under the eye socket. The next one is under the nose. The next one is on the chin point where the crease is there of the chin. Then we come to the edge of the collarbone and just come down about an inch. So you might feel a hollow there. That's one of the points. The next one, which is the second last one, is directly under the armpit. Now that's about four fingers from the armpit down. If women are wearing a bra, it tends to be the top of your bra strap. And the last point is the top of the head. So that's the direct center of the head. And you can tap there almost with an open palm instead. And they're the only eight points that we use in all our research trials. And it's the sequence, right? Is that correct? There Are there times that we use some of those points individually? For younger children, we tend not to use all of them. So mm. we know children don't have layers, so they tend to only use four. The sequence just helps people, uh, if you like, follow a routine. Human beings actually do like to have something to follow. Mm -hmm. But look, if, if, if you forgot one or two of them, or certainly if we're working with populations such as our obese adults, and that 
point under the arm can't be reached easily, it's okay to sort of let that one go. It's not necessarily the exact sequence and hitting them every single time. It seems to be that the majority of points, as long as they're tapped upon while you focus your mind on the issue, will get you the outcome. Can you talk a little bit more about those outcomes and some of what you saw in the research that you were doing? Absolutely. So we have spent 15 years looking at food cravings in adults, and we have even looked at young teenagers with unhealthy eating habits. All of the things we measure, so we measure everything psychological, like how much power does food have over me? How much restraint do I have? Severity of food cravings, but then also things like anxiety, depression, those types of symptoms, as well as weight all of the things that we've ever measured all significantly are affected, decreased, if you like, at the end of our treatment programs, which tend to be about eight weeks. But what happens, and we've done six, 12-month and now two-year follow-up trials where we follow them up, they haven't had any more tapping. None of those cravings or any of those other things we've measured ever come back to where they were before they started. They actually stay changed from the end of treatment. And that's quite significant in terms of statistics. But from a patient point of view, what they'll tell you is I've lost weight. So on average, that might be something like for us, you know, five to 10 kilograms, that might be, you know, 11 to 20 pounds, but they've done nothing else to actually encourage that weight loss, except not eat the food that they tapped on in our trial, but they've never tapped on it since. So we get this longevity that appears to occur and that neural pathway we mentioned stays changed permanently. So we've taken it even further. We've done cigarette smoking trials. Uh, we've done chronic pain trials where people have had long-term chronic pain, depression. And we're right in the middle right now of a cancer support trial. Mm. So we're actually supporting cancer patients uh, with things like coping with chemotherapy, nausea, as well as the fear and worry about what that cancer diagnosis means. So it's far-reaching. It's actually phenomenal what this can be applied to. It's pretty phenomenal. I mean, when we think about it from an outcome perspective, really Mm. looking at that decrease in the craving alone, when you're measuring power, restraint, severity, anxiety, when you're measuring those things, are there typical psychological measurements that you're using? Or is that a scaled measure? Yes. So we always use uh, validated standardized measures that Mm -hmm. already exist out there that we get access to. And we tend to use the same ones across different trials so that we can actually then have a comparison. And at an even, I guess, more robust level, we ask individuals to do our data analysis that are unconnected with the trial. So it means they're even a little bit more removed and independent. So they mightn't even know what the treatment was that was delivered. And we have compared to things like cognitive behavioral therapy and relaxation. So we even sort of take it a step further where we try to have less bias uh, involved by using those measures, but also having independent people analyze the data. And in the treatment, if it's any length of time, eight weeks or whatever the trial length is, Mm. are people doing it when they feel a craving or is there other kind of treatment like do it when you wake up, do it three times a day? And what's the regularity of the administration? So they come to us for two hours a week over that eight weeks. So they get 16 hours tapping in total and we do group therapy. So there's a really profound Mm -hmm. impact when you'd use 
use groups for EFT. So we might have 10 uh, adults sitting together. They tap for the majority of that two hours while they're with us and it's exposure therapy. So they actually bring their food cravings into the group and they work through what is, it's quite a funny photo moment that if you saw all these people, because the foods they bring in are quite interesting. We've had whole roast barbecue chickens (laughs) and then we've had, you know, 15 chocolate bars on someone's lap and a loaf of bread with a jar of jam, that type of thing. So they actually are really engaging in what it is that the food is triggering them and that's what they tap on and they obviously have people that are leading and facilitating those sessions so they get lots of individual attention but to be honest and we do ask them only about 10 to 15 percent ever go on to do tapping at home on their own so once they've conquered their cravings in the group they forget about it so Mm. they actually don't necessarily so some of them will go on and use it for other things like pain or stress or you know worry that type of thing because they realize oh wow this thing works for everything but most of our food craving participants, that's it, they're done. They're like, don't want that chocolate anymore. So they forget about it and never tap again. But what that shows us is it does last over time. If you nail it in the time you've got, you're actually okay. Pretty much we think forever. That is just, I'm so amazed hearing you talk about the actual research behind what you've done. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if there's anything you would like clinicians to know listening to our conversation today that you think is being missed and could really help patients to achieve their outcomes, what would that be? I am a a clinical and health psychologist as well, so a practitioner myself. I guess what I would urge and, and even teaching our students here at university is to stay open to evidence-based approaches that are emerging that are actually having great efficacy and effect and not to perhaps dismiss them because they might be new, even though this one's been around for 40 odd years. I think sometimes we get locked in too much to sort of not being open. And so I just encourage people to stay open. And if I could give the one thing that has emerged out of our 15 years in the food space that I think a lot of diet programs, even our very well-known ones worldwide, fail to address is the issue that once somebody's food craving has actually diminished or they don't have desire anymore, people will still override that to avoid wasting food. And that Mm. has been an amazing thing that has emerged out of the diaries. We got people to keep food diaries in our early days of the trials. So we now apply tapping to the very feeling of guilt because most of the people that come through our programs have got parents and grandparents that have come out of the Great Depression and times of scarcity and the world wars. And what we've noticed is they will override a lack of desire to not have a bad feeling of guilt, to not waste food. And if you're doing anything in that food space, absolutely address that feeling in people however you want to, because they often won't know it's there. But when it emerges, it can actually undo lots of other things. So many clinical pearls today. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us and for doing the work that you're doing in the world. It's phenomenal. Thank you so much for the invitation. Love sharing it. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and production support from Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a really short reminder that a new episode is 
is ready and waiting for you. You also have an open invitation to email us. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15 Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.